Good morning. The sermon text is taken from Paul's letter to Philippians, chapters 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you all. This is God's word. Well, we're wrapping up our uh, series in the book of Philippians this week and next week. And uh, these last two sermons in Philippians are going to be a lot like the previous three or four we've had in the book of Philippians because uh, Paul writes his letters the same way. Uh, whether it's Philippians or Ephesians or Colossians or First Thessalonians, Paul spends the first half of his letters telling the people of the churches what they should believe, what right doctrine is. And then the second half of his letters, he's telling the Christians how they should live in light of that doctrine. So the second half of all these letters, and Philippians is no exception, is very uh, imperative heavy, lots of commands, lots of instructions about how to live the Christian life. So if you're sitting out there thinking, it seems like every week J.D. has given us a new sermon on how to live the Christian life, well, I am. And the reason is because Paul does it as he works his way through the book of Philippians. So last week we saw where Paul calls us citizens of heaven, if we're Christians. And so we unpacked that phrase and looked at what it meant, means to be a citizen of heaven. Then two weeks ago, Paul said, we are to press on toward the goal to win the prize, which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. So we looked at what pressing on means in the context of the Christian life. Well, today, in verses 2 through 9, a pretty famous passage in the book of Philippians, we're going to again examine what the Christian life looks like, and we'll look at it under three headings, okay? So first of all, what I want to point out to you are five commands Paul gives Christians in these verses. These are imperatives. These are commands. These are directions. There are actually seven or eight in this passage, but I didn't have time to get to all of them, so I'm just going to give you five this morning. Then second, I'll show you one reality that makes it possible to obey those commands. And then third, a promise that comes to us if we do obey. So we've got the five commands, the reality that makes obedience to the commands possible, then a promise that flows if we obey the commands. So that's where we'll go this morning. First of all, five commands for Christians from Paul. And I'm going to work through these pretty quickly. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm, by no means am I saying everything that could, every one of these commands could get a sermon of their own. But they're pretty self-explanatory, so I'll just point them out briefly and, and move through this first point. First command. Christians, we are to be joyful. So I've got to smile when I say that, right? Christians, 
we are to be joyful. Verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Too often, Christians have been portrayed in the media as harsh, hypocritical, judgmental, mean. And maybe it's because sometimes professing Christians are all those things. But I, I know of no better example of this than the almost libelous portrayal Nathaniel Hawthorne gave of Puritans in A Scarlet Letter, where the Christians, the leaders in that, in that story, were extremely hypocritical, extremely harsh, extremely judgmental, nothing joyful about them. But then if Christians are, if they're not portrayed as hypocritical or mean, then on the other end, they're, they're thought of by outsiders to be sincere people. They're not hypocrites. They're dedicated people. They're honest people. They're hardworking people. But they're no fun to be around. L looking back on my childhood, some of the people that I thought were the most dedicated Christians, and they really were in a lot of ways, uh, almost to a fault, they worked hard and they were serious in their church involvement and they were honest. Yet they seemed to be deathly afraid of enjoying themselves. If, they, if there was ever a moment of levity or lightheartedness, they thought the devil had to be in it. And I, I know of one very unfair definition of Christians, which goes like this. A Christian is someone who is scared to death that somebody somewhere is having a good time. Well, that's not obviously how the New Testament views the Christian life. Paul says he's commanded that we are to be joyful. So Romans 14, 17, Paul says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 22, Paul says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. So we are called as Christians to exhibit this abiding, deep, thoughtful, but very real and attractive joy in every corner of our lives. And in whatever circumstances, at work, at home, at play, at rest, joyful. So that's one command. Second, Paul says that Christians are to be gentle. So verse 5a in the ESV says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. But the Greek word translated there as reasonableness in the ESV is a notoriously difficult Greek word to translate. Um, the King James Version, the Old King James, has moderation. The American Standard Version has forbearance. The NASB has gentle spirit. And then the NIV and the New King James have gentleness. And I think gentleness does come closest to what Paul's communicating here. Um, Christians, we are called to be kind and gentle and patient with everyone. No matter how irritating that person might be, and people can be very irritating, can they not? We are called to be gentle in spirit with everyone. That does not mean that Christians are pushovers. That does not mean that there are hills on which Christians cannot die. We, we do not violate our consciences to avoid conflict. But even in the conflict, there is to be a gentle spirit about it. Third, Paul says that Christians should never worry. Verse 6, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. I don't have to elaborate on that, do I? I mean, don't worry. I'll just say that Jesus also says the same thing regularly. In Matthew six thirty one. Jesus says, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? 
So never worrying, never an anxious thought about your money, or dare I say it, the church's money this morning. Never an anxious thought about your family. Never an anxious thought about your kids. Never an anxious thought about your health. Never an anxious thought about your career. Probably this is the command Christians most want to keep but find that they can't. Fourth, Christians are commanded to always pray. Always pray. Verse 6, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And Paul repeats this in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, where he says, Pray without ceasing. And again, like the command not to worry, this is clear. Pray about everything. You don't need a sermon to tell you how to do that. But I will say this. For a long time, I did not think it was practical to pray in everything. And I remember vividly and with great repentance the first sermon I preached on prayer where I basically said Christians shouldn't pray about so-called trivial things. And I think the illustration I used was if your tire is flat on the side of the road, don't pray about it. Get out and change it. I publicly retract. You didn't hear that one. That was a long time ago. But I publicly retract that statement because at, the further I go in my, in my Christian life, the more I am absolutely convinced the most godly people I know pray about everything. If they have a flat shot tire, they do pray about it before they change. They pray that God, that God won't let them be worried about the meeting they're, they're late to. They won't get angry, you know, like the Hulk did when he was changing the tire. Uh, if you remember the television show from years and years ago, they won't get angry while, he's, while they're changing the tire, that they can even rejoice that they have a flat tire. The, the most Christ, godly Christians I know pray when they lose a contact lens in the grass. They pray when they're in a parking lot that's crowded and they need a spot. They pray over the meals they prepare, that they, not just that they would bless the meal publicly, but while they're preparing it, they would pray that it would be nourishing to the people in their household. They pray that they would be patient with their children when their children come to them in the middle of the night asking for a glass of water and, and they wouldn't get angry with them. And on and on it goes. The most godly people I know pray about everything, and it's because these people know and take seriously what Jesus said in John 15, 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Godly people know that apart from Jesus Christ, they can do nothing. So in anything and everything they pray, they are utterly convinced that God is concerned and uh, provides for even the minutest details of our lives. He knows even the very numbers of hairs on our head. And then fifth, Paul commands Christians to control their thoughts. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And then in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, Paul says, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. One implication of this, one way you can apply this to your life immediately today, Christians, 
If you want to think only of lovely, pure, admirable, commendable, honorable things, is you can restrict the diet of the media you consume. If you want to immediately take control of your thought lives and obey this command, restrict the diet of the media you consume. Are the television shows and movies you watch, are the magazines you read, and are the Twitter accounts and other social media feeds you follow commendable to God? We cannot. You will never be able to control your thought life unless you, to some extent, filter what comes into your thought life. And I've told many men, many men who have struggled with sexual fantasies and sexual sin, and I don't know why it would be any different for women, but I've told them the best thing they can do is starve the beast if they want to get their thought life under control. And of course that means don't view pornography. I mean, that should be a given, Christians. But it also means do not watch any programming that has nudity or scantily clad people, men or women, or sexual innuendo or simulated sex or anything of the kind as a regular part of its content. And it would go the same thing with language and violence. Filter it out. Now, if you apply that kind of filter to the media you consume, yes, you will not be able to watch 98% of the stuff produced in America today. But just chalk that up to counting the cost of following Christ and do it anyway because we are called, we are commanded to get our thought lives under control. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 3 through 4, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So these are the five commands Paul gives Christians. And let's just go ahead and say it. From any kind of natural point of view, it is impossible for us to keep these commands. It's impossible to keep any one of them, let alone all five. Let's just go ahead and say that. But I want to give you a test in your heart right now. I want to, if you call yourself a Christian... I want to help you discern in your heart right now whether or not you are a nominal cultural Christian. Someone who just believes in word but doesn't really believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Because someone who is a nominal cultural Christian, and, and you are especially at risk at this if you have spent a lot of time in church over the course of your life. A nominal cultural Christian looks at these five commands and really doesn't take them seriously and, and says, they would never say it out loud, but they say in their heart, and they might even say it to their kids, you know, one day if their kids get too religious, if their kids start talking about going on the mission field, get too serious about this Christian stuff. A nominal cultural Christian looks at these commands and says, nobody really expects Christians to do this, and they kind of blow them off. But someone who's truly following after the Lord Jesus Christ looks at these five commands and confesses freely, I can't keep them, but they long to. They would love to know the key to obeying these five commands. And they don't write them off, and they don't just think it's preacher talk. They do aspire to obedience. So if that's you, if you're here today and you aspire to obedience in these five commands, what's the key? 
And that gets us to the second point. One reality that makes obedience to the commands possible. And I, th- I think it's found in verse 3. So let's read verses 2 and 3 back in Philippians 4. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. That's a phrase I want us to focus on. Fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, big picture, there was some dispute between Euodia and Syntyche, two, two women in the church at Philippi. I have no idea what the dispute was. No commentator does. That's not what I'm interested in. I want us to focus on fellow workers because that's a phrase Paul, I didn't realize until last week. It, it never, I never, never dawned on me. Paul uses that phrase a lot in the New Testament. More than a dozen times, Paul refers to his fellow workers. Now, so Christians are fellow workers, if we are workers, Christians, who's our employer? God. 1 Corinthians 3.9 tells us that we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We are workers. God is our employer. God is the owner of the business at which we work. Now, what's significant about that? All right, think about it like this. If you're a worker... If you're a worker in a business, you are not worried about the business being successful like the owner is. Those of you who are owners, you know, don't you? (laughs) Your employees are nowhere near as concerned about the business going under as you are, are they? Owners stay up late at night. Owners worry. Owners' name are on the letterhead. Their name is in the name of the business, and they are intensely concerned that the business stay afloat. They are intensely concerned about the reputation of the business. If you're an owner, you're never off the clock, are you? I mean, if if you're the owner of a business and something goes wrong, it doesn't matter if you're on vacation. It doesn't matter if it's 3 a.m. on a Saturday night. You get up and you go there, right? Because you're the owner. You're responsible. But... Are your workers? (laughs) Are your workers responsible like that? No. Now, you expect your workers to show up and do a good job and uh, take pride in their work, but workers are nowhere near responsible or concerned about the ongoing health of the business as the owner is. All right, so let's apply this truth to what Paul is saying here. He calls us workers in God's field, and then he goes further and he says that we are also God's field. So do you see what he's saying? Paul is saying that Christians are workers from God and our place of business is our lives. The field, our labor, all of it belongs to God. We we are just workers. Everything we do in in the world today, we're just workers for God. So yes, as Christians, we have work to do. Yes, as Christians, we are to be faithful. We can and we must be honest and apply ourselves. But we are just workers. So Christians, you must not allow yourselves to take the burdens of ownership on you because you don't own your life. You're a worker. You're not an owner. And this is where we mess up as Christians. We're constantly tempted to take back the responsibilities of ownership from God. And we must never do that because... We don't own our lives anymore. We're just workers in our lives. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So Christians, we are to be faithful in our lives, but we are not responsible for how our lives turn out because this life is not really ours anymore, is it? We work in our lives, but we are not responsible for our lives. And if you will just, if that truth can ever become real to you, it is the most liberating truth imaginable. I mean, how many people in their work lives have thought that they've wanted control over their jobs and they thought it would be so great if they were just the boss? And then they got to be the boss and they found out it wasn't that great. I know one guy uh, years ago, he, uh, he was an attorney in a big firm, big, big firm. And he felt like a cog in a machine and he hated it. And he thought, you know what? What I need to do is go out on my own as an attorney. And when I'm calling the shots, life will be a whole lot better. So he went out and he started his own firm. And he was miserable. <laughs> Because for the first time in his life, he had to worry about overhead. He had to worry about making a payroll. He had to worry about bringing in clients and keeping them happy. And it took about two years, but then he went back to a big firm. Because he was sick and tired of being an owner all the time, and he wanted to be a worker. So, friends, if God is the one who's in control of your life, if God is the one who bought you, if God is the one who owns you, and if everything about you belongs to him, then he is the one responsible for how it will turn out. He is the one who needs to worry. He is the one who has to take on the burden of ownership. Don't you dare do it. And if that can become real to you, then you can keep these commands because you can just relax. I'm just a worker. My life even isn't really my own. I'm just a worker in the field of my life. God deals with all that. So if we see that we are just workers, then we can be gentle with one another. You know, why do we get angry with one another in our lives? I'll tell you why I get angry with other people. I, when I'm afraid that my life is about to go into the toilet for whatever reason... I get short with the people around me. I get angry. I get frustrated. But if I can ever remember that my life isn't mine to begin with, it doesn't matter. It's his life. He can do with it what he wants. I just have to show up and be faithful. And if you can view your life through that lens, you can be gentle with everyone. Your gentleness can be evident to all. In a very real way, Christians, we don't even live anymore. We're dead. This is Colossians 3, 1 through 3, where Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I mean, if it ever takes root in your heart that you are dead and you really don't even exist anymore except as you exist in Christ, then your gentleness can be evident to all. And then second, if you realize that your life is not your own anymore, why would you ever worry about anything? I mean, do you think workers of good bosses are worried about having the tools when they get to the work site and having the work to do and 
having enough water to drink and having bathroom breaks and things like that when they show up at work every day? No, they don't worry about it. They just go to work. That's the boss's responsibility to provide all, the, all those things. Well, my goodness, how much less should we worry when we realize our boss is the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us? And he will supply all our needs. And we'll pray. We'll pray regularly because if an employee in a good business can go to their boss and ask them for what they need to do the task they've been assigned that day, how much more can we go to the ultimate employer, God in heaven, and ask him for the supplies we need to do the tasks he's given us this day? 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Paul says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Friends, you can be certain that you will always have everything you need to do God's will in your life that day. All you have to do is ask. And then, of course... If we see our lives on our own, that we're just fellow workers, we'll rejoice. I mean, we'll not only rejoice because we can relax and we don't have to live like owners anymore, but we'll rejoice because we will know what our God did to make us His. I love Ephesians 2.13, where Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christians, you know this, don't you? You were once so far away from God. You were without hope and without God in the world. God's judgment rightly was hanging over your heads and you had hell waiting on you. But then God sent His Son, Jesus, and when He shed His blood on the cross, He did it in your place so that you could be reconciled to God. He, you were far away, but He dragged you to the Father. And you've been brought near, and He will never let you go. If He who did not spare His own Son would not let you go, how can He now fail to graciously give you all things? And when you know the truth of the gospel, and that's the most real thing in your heart, you can rejoice always. You can rejoice in all circumstances. If you remember the reality that you are just a worker, not an owner, a worker in your life, you can keep these commands. And then, point three, the promise. The promise that flows from the obedience. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Which surpasses all understanding. Some translations have it, which transcends all understanding. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means this. It means if, you're, if you know you're a worker, and you're living like a worker and not an owner then no matter how bad your life might look like on the outside, on the inside, you will have a peace from God that can only be called supernatural. The whole world on the outside can look like it's falling apart 
around you, but on the inside, a peace that is supernatural, that transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. And my goodness, Christians, does it matter what happens in the world around you if you have that in your heart? Really? The peace of God, which by ordinary reckoning no one could experience, is yours. And let me give you just one illustration of it. It's kind of a severe one, but sometimes those are the best ones. Many of you know the story of Jim Elliot. He and four other men were missionaries to the Stone Age tribe in Ecuador back in the 1950s. And they, made, they were the first modern people to ever make contact with this tribe. And uh, they spent one day on this river in the jungles of Ecuador interacting with a few members of this tribe. And three days later, about ten of them came out and speared them all to death. And Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, was at the other end of a shortwave radio when she heard that her husband was missing and almost certainly dead. And she says at that moment, when by all outward reckoning, her, her life should be falling apart. She says that at that moment, a peace that transcended all understanding that she had came over her, and the Lord brought to her mind a verse, Isaiah 43, 2 which says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And in that moment, she had a peace that transcended all understanding. Now, it wasn't that she didn't cry. It wasn't that she didn't miss her husband. But she did have a peace about her, such that when all the other missionaries left, and they did, all the other missionaries left, she had the kind of peace that enabled her not only to stay with her 10-month-old, you know, now orphaned daughter, Valerie, to stay there in the jungle, but a year later move and live with the very tribe that killed her husband and begin winning them to Christ. No earthly reckoning could account for how someone can do that, but the peace of God can. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you know you don't own your life, and if you obey like a worker and not an owner. Friends, do you have that? Do you know that all you are, all you are, is a worker in the vineyard of the Lord? Your whole life is just His vineyard, you're working in it, but He's the one who owns it. Do you know that? Then if you do, you can have this peace. That's the promise. And you can sing, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. If you know you're a worker, you can have that kind of peace. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, please help us to see what we are in Christ. We're just workers. And help us to repent every time we start to live like owners. Help us to see that we are called to be faithful in our lives, but we are not responsible for our lives because they're not our lives anymore. And I pray... Father, that as we come to the Lord's table now, please bring this truth home.
bring this truth home that we belong to you because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.